Welcome to the Swim Swim Breakdown. As always, I'm your host, Coleman Hodges, coming to you from my mom's house, my favorite place in the world, Columbia, Missouri. We are joined, as always, by Braden Keith, Swim Swim Editor-in-Chief from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and Swim Swim Senior International Reporter Loretta Race from French 75 Boutique in Kentucky. What's up, guys? I expected you to do this whole podcast in a British accent after your travels. <laughs> Another another sign that he was not actually there. I'm so yeah, convinced. Our conspiracy theory: Coleman didn't actually. Um, they think I made the whole trip up. Green screen. Good day, mate. No, that's Australia. No, that's Australia. That's very wrong. I didn't go. I didn't go to the UK. I'm going to get an email about that one, Coleman. Oi. Forward it to you and you. Oi, it's the swim swim breakdown. I I don't know. Oh, I got so nothing. Aussie. <laughs> Coleman, you can barely pronounce anything in English. Um, yeah, <laughs> don't, in American English. Don't, don't ask don't this of me. <laughs> this is too much. I can't talk in an Australian accent. I can barely talk about swimming, but we're going to try to do that anyway. So I'm glad we waited to do this until Wednesday because big news dropped just hours prior to the recording of this breakdown. Jack Bowerly is retiring seven-time NCAA champion, uh, leading the Bulldogs, the Bulldog women specifically, to multiple NCAA titles. He was the U.S. Olympic head coach, and now he's retired. Wild speculation. Who could, who could, not who will, who could be the next head coach at Georgia? I've been debating whether or not to like do this article because it seems pretty clear to everybody that this is going to be an internal promotion. Um, you know, Stephanie Moreno Williams, uh, pulled her name out of consideration for the pit job. And I can only imagine that would allegedly, happen, allegedly, <laughs> because, uh, she was led to believe that she was going to be receiving more responsibility at Georgia. You know, the rumors around NCAAs was a little more vague than a retirement. It was kind of a, you know, maybe Jack was going to step back, take sort of an emeritus role and give the associate head coaches of which Georgia has four. I think all of their assistants are associate head coaches. That's um, how you do which it. Is <laughs> funny thing. So good for Jack for negotiating <laughs> a lot of money for them. Um, but, you know, the, the rumor was that Stephanie was going to take basically take on the women's team. However, they de- decide to describe it formally. Stephanie mm-hmm. was going to be leading the women's team. And the prevailing name was Neil Versfeld was going to be taking the men's team. Um, and if all if all of the rumors have been are true, and we've been hearing this basically since Jack skipped or or didn't wasn't at the SEC championships, you have to believe that they have an internal plan in place because they wouldn't have waited this long to get into the coaching carousel. Um, because a lot of the top candidates have already found jobs elsewhere. So they would be looking for the third or fourth or fifth or sixth choices. And I just don't think that's what Georgia wants to do. So I'm assuming that the rumors are going to be true and it's going to be Stephanie and one of the men um, leading the program into the future. Yeah, before we went on this podcast, I looked at just Athens local media, and that's essentially who they were speculating as well. Not even speculating, like basically quasi reporting that it was going to be Stephanie and then Neil. And so my question to Coleman ahead of the recording was just I was curious why it would be Neil over the other, you know, associate head coaches. So I think, you know, that's a question, I guess. Yeah, and it's, you know, Neil came back to Georgia a few years ago when when you start looking at 
potential candidates. Um, as great as the Georgia program is, there's not a, I, would, I wouldn't say there's a super long list like some other programs have of alumni who are now top level coaches. And most of the people on that list are back at Georgia already. <laughs> um, so it's, you know, there's not like a, a crazy long list of, of outsiders. And once they brought Neil back, it, it was conceivable that that's what was going to happen. Um, but it's, you know, it's hard to say. Neil could, could certainly hold that position longer than um, either Brian or Jerry could just from an age perspective. And I know they're not allowed to hire on the basis of age, but they've had one head coach for how many years? And 43. 43 years. <laughs> and I'm sure they liked that. I'm sure the ADs liked not having to hire new head coaches all the time. Um, so, we know you it's know, not going to be Mike Bottom because he's, what is he, $1.1 million yeah. <laughs> over well, five Which years. pales in comparison to what Jack was making. I think mm-hmm. Jack was making 300 plus a year was the, the last mm-hmm. contract. I want to say 330, but I haven't, yeah, I haven't wasn't, fact that. Wasn't he the highest paid head coach in swimming? I think he was, and Eddie might have been bumped back ahead of him, but those those were the two guys. Yeah, which, uh, I mean, obviously deservedly so. So, so what, one thing I'm interested in is that we saw a similar thing when Greg Troy retired at Florida, right? Where the men and the women split, and then that was that was what it was for a few years, and then um, you know someone the the head women's coach left, and then they combined again under Nesty, right? And I'm kind of curious to see how this plays out over the next few years if they will split the programs, men and women, and if they will stay split, if that is the case. To me, from an SEC school perspective, where you have essentially unlimited money, it doesn't make sense to split the program because you can have more assistant coaches, which I I think is, I think is kind of a silly rule that um, you can have more assistants in a combined program, but then you can in the the sum of two split programs. But um, that's the way the rules are. And so to me, even if you use this kind of Tennessee model where Matt Kredich is nominally the head of the men's program, but they essentially have their own staff and structure that makes most of the decisions for that program. Um, it makes sense to leave it combined, but the way it went down in, at Florida also kind of makes sense uh, because you respect the coach you have you keep them there through the transition period which you need um at a place like georgia coming out of the jack era continuity uh, unless you were going to get somebody from another big job who doesn't necessarily need to leave you know like a brayden holloway if you convince him to leave for a hundred thousand dollar raise or something like that short of that continuity is about the best thing you can do here and so you keep your associate head coaches you keep them happy one will rise to the top. One will find a job that appeals to them more elsewhere because all these people have been in combined programs for a long time. So probably they find out that they prefer the combined program uh, approach and one leaves and then you have an opportunity to sort of make it whole again, um, which I don't think is as big of a deal as people want it to be. Yeah. So the interesting point, it'll be, It'll be fun to see how this plays out, or maybe it'll play out exactly as we think, and that'll be that. I mean, Georgia, certainly their women's program is not what we're kind of used to it being, right? But they still have some studs on that team. The men's team is obviously 
in a, in almost as good of a place as it's ever been, I believe. Um, then they've got some serious studs on, on that side. And so be cool to see both sides, any wild speculations, Braden, before we move on, on who the next coach could be, if it's not internal. I know you really want me to do this, but like, I I've want it so bad. Here, I've been sitting here and like thinking of like, oh, here's the one guy that could disrupt this. And I just, I just can't think of any, um, there's none that are obvious, you know, Sean Chamel will probably wound up, wind up getting promoted from volunteer to a full-time assistant, which is fun for him. Um, he's been I, a volunteer there for so long too. And yeah. he's been a very integral part of their pro group as well, which we see a lot of times which with volunteer coaches. So, right. well, yeah, he's well not deserved. Like the average volunteer coach. He has a lot of D1 experience, including head coaching experience. So, yeah, um, fair enough. You know, it's uh, we we think this is how it's going to go. Um, I'm sure we'll find out sooner. They're going to give they're going to give Jack assume, a few but... days. Give it a few days for everybody to talk about Jack deservedly so, and then they're going to announce it. The, I think. I think the only reason they haven't announced it is just to give Jack his due time to mm-hmm. in the spotlight before they move to the next thing. Mm-hmm. Which, as you said, deservedly so. So we talked about Jack. We talked about the coaches. Let's talk about something else. <laughs> Katie Ledecky is not going to duel in the pool. Sigh. I'm bummed. I get it. But also this is like the load management thing. It's like, man, I, you deserve your rest, but come on. We want to see you race RAR and Titmus. Dang it. But she might not even be there either. At this point, I'm like, okay, is this duel in the pool even going to happen? And if it does, you know, will it be the total B team or will people actually show up and swim? Coleman, you're just saying things that are going to get me angry emails by calling it the B team. <laughs> I know. Um, because we've Sorry. said that before and we get lots of nasty emails. All right. You um, can email me angrily. Coleman at swimstorm.com. Um, <laughs> I, it's, you know, I think what we're going to see is it's going to, the kind of Americans who are going to go to this are the Americans who, what I would call the yeoman pros, the, the working pros, the ones who are doing what they need to do to earn a living. Um, so I think, you know, uh, like a Maddie Bannock will probably go to this. Michael Andrew will probably go to this because he loves going anywhere. And I, I think he really enjoys Australia. There was once upon a time, I think he was talking about swimming for Australia, if I recall, like moving there and swimming for them. Um, would have been wild. Uh, yeah. Is it short course or long course? Um, I don't know. I don't remember. Well, do we even know how? Is it going to be an invite thing or is it going to be a qualification thing? It Do we know? Sounds that like it's going to be sort of a loosely prioritized <laughs> invite. So it's going to be kind of roughly it's based. Going to be short course worlds. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it's- see, what struck home with me was like today. So I was watching just ESPN on the trouble this morning, and like Aaron Rodgers, quarterback, you know, Green Bay Packers, specifically said he was only at the mini training camp, so he wouldn't get fined. Like, so like other sports have these kind of like. <laughs> sureties in place to like the you know so that you don't miss certain things because fans expected of you and it's kind of your job so I just get so frustrated with scratches let alone people just totally discounting a meet that's supposed to be fun and exciting and like a head-to-head match and it's kind of fizzling out already yeah well the Australians will probably show up because it's a low effort 
trip for them. And if the Americans and they know they swim up, awesome at home, yeah, they, you know what I mean? So true. They're going to be driven to so beat true. the Americans. That will play huge in their media if if they beat the Americans. Um, I think this goes back to an ongoing conversation in swimming. Katie, it's not going to be a lot of money. It's not going to be a lot of exposure. Katie Ledecky, everybody wants to make more money, but Katie Ledecky, Caleb Dressel, some of these swimmers have made as much money as they need to make off their swimming careers and will continue to make more money whether they go to the duel in the pool or not. The question is whether they can step back from that and say, Okay, you know, all these swimmers like to say, oh, for the growth of the sport, for the good of the sport. And it's it feels often very much like lip service. Phelps used to say that all the time, too. Right. And it turned out that mostly just met Michael Phelps swim schools. Um, Mm -hmm. That's how he wanted to grow the sport, because he didn't go to a lot of these other meets either. He focused on what he needed to do for his racing. And so it's the same debate as the ISL. It's like, can these swimmers sort of step back from, from their needs in order to benefit the ecosystem as a whole. And when they're in the primes of their careers, they don't want to, and they don't have to, and there's not an incentive structure to make them. So if they're going to do it, it's going to be out of the goodness of their hearts. And that's just kind of not how pro athletics really works. People just don't do things out of the goodness of their hearts because making the smart decision is worth so much more money. And then, you know, then they say things like, for my family, who was the, the NFL wide receiver who said he needed a bigger contract because his previous $20 million <laughs> contract wasn't enough to feed his family. Um, but, you know, it's just it is what it is in swimming. It's a cycle. It's an ugly cycle. And, and we might just have to accept at this point that swimming is going to be what it is. This then it's is not going to grow. Then it's of then... popularity. Yeah. And it's yeah. That we'll just live on Swim Slam. We'll be our own little ecosystem. Screaming <laughs> about why ESPN doesn't cover swimming. And I'll go about our, our lives that way. But like well, you just said it. You said it is what it is. And like, so you can either be complacent or you can actually try to do something about it, like incentivize or decentivize. So I, that's what I'm for at this point. As a fan, yeah. that's what I'm for. And I guess the A question is, right, is, is Katie Ledecky growing the sport more by winning four Olympic gold medals instead of three because she's not burnt out or taking a break in the middle of 2022 or whatever, or by going to duel in the pool and just, you know, going to, to all these meets that don't actually matter, but would be really cool. And obviously everyone, every athlete makes that decision for themselves, but you know, Again, this had the potential to be really cool, and we've already got one monumental battle that we know for sure is not going to happen now. So that's Duel in the Pool. We got more Australian news, though. Uh, Kyle Chalmers <laughs> plays in footy game just weeks out from World Championships. Uh, footy, that is the Australian Football League. Chalmers is no stranger to this. Loretta, this was your article. Take us there. Give us the insight on this one. Right. So his father played and now he's a coach. And this is literally, I feel Kyle's true passion. He in 2018 said past Tokyo, this is before the Olympics were postponed, obviously. He said past 2020, I'm probably going to switch to be an Australian rules football player, at least some tier of their league over there. Um, And he actually had a mishap. So the injuries totally happened. I've looked at film. It's kind of like rugby kind of thing is what it looks like to me. Um, So it's not like a non- combative sport 
But, you know, I think it's just funny that, you know, we as Americans, we claim Ryan Lochte, who basically like injured himself, like break dancing. So if someone's going to injure themselves, they're going to do it, you know, on any turf, pool, wherever. And even Adam Petey, you know, had a foot injury and he was in the weight room. So even if you're doing something for your sport, you could potentially still injure yourself. And so just bottom line for Chalmers in particular, I honestly think that's his true passion. Like that's where he kind of clears his head, has kind of a reset. And so I think for him, I think it, it was a rejuvenation type thing. And he did it with his brother, Jackson. So, you know, I think for him, that's what he needed to do. And he risked injury and he's his own man and he can kind of make his own decisions. Dude, how much do we know how much he like actually played? Was this kind of a ceremonial thing where, you know, he had a red jersey on and you weren't supposed to hit him too hard? No, or- there's literally like, I don't even know if I, I think I linked it in my article, but like he's getting like full on tackled like from behind and he has the ball. And so I would assume he got a few bumps and scrapes from that, just that one instance. So as far as I know, he played the whole game or a good chunk of it and he definitely got tackled. (laughs) Yeah. So I, I pulled up, I pulled up some, uh, some data on injuries in Australian rules football. Um, 41.7 injuries per club per season with 156.2 missed games per club per season. Uh, Lower limb injuries are most prevalent. Hamstring strains are number one, followed by um, hip flexions and uh, ACL injuries. Most of his injuries are shoulder, right? He doesn't have any knee. And heart. (laughs) So shoulder sprains and dislocations count for about 11.5 missed games per club per season and largely resulted from tackling and contact. So shoulders are his problem. And that's a relatively, it's less than six or 7% of the injuries sustained in Australian rules football. So I don't know if he did that math, but I did that math. (laughs) And that leads me to believe that, you know, the shoulder isn't a problem and hopefully he, obviously he knows what he's doing, but hopefully he got some, some technique refreshers on how to fall without getting injured, because that's a big part of this, especially in, in the versions of football with less padding than we're used to here in America. Um, but, you know, if it keeps his passion for sport, I think it's good. Florent Manadou is the one we haven't talked about in handball. Um, he, he's probably the best analogy for, for Kyle Chalmers and his relationship with um, Australian rules football. I don't think Kyle would make it out of multiple seasons of an AFL league play with, with, a, with a whole enough body to come back to swimming like Florent did. Um, so he probably doesn't have that option. Um, but you know, I'm all for athletes being athletes and, and sparking their passion for athletics. Swimming can be very boring. If I could choose to be good at swimming or good at Australian rules football, I think I would choose Australian rules football until I tore my ACL the first time. And then I'd probably go back to swimming. <laughs> Uh, I, I, that just makes me wonder what Florent Manadou looked like compared to other handballers. Like are handballers small? Are they big? Because no, they're, they're Florent is a literal gorilla. <laughs> <laughs> um, handball players tend to be like, uh, basketball players, the, that kind of a build. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So yeah. he maybe was a little bulkier, yeah. but still. I'm sure fairly athletic. So I I'm, I'm with you guys. I'm all for Kyle doing his thing. Like I, 
really doubt he got into this just like, oh, let's play a football game and like didn't do his homework or didn't know what he was getting into. I'm sure there was some risk of injury, but, um, you know, people saying this wasn't a smart idea. It's like he just went through a lot at the world championship trials with, you know, with the media attention that he got and he Mm -hmm. said he needed a mental refresh. Seems like this was part of that process. Seems like he's fine now and at training camp for Worlds. So I guess we'll see how he does in the butterfly only and relay only events in Budapest. Uh, We have another swimmer stepping away from the sport, not retiring, (laughs) as as we now know. South American record holder Delfina Pignatiello uh, announces that she was stepping away at age 22, um, she kind of had a few different reasons. She cited one of them as the media attention she was getting, uh, saying that in a TEDx talk, I touched the wall in Tokyo 2020, realized, didn't know what my time was, uh, didn't know what position I was, only thought about social media and how people were going, basically how people were going to react to my time. Um, what do you make of this, you know, preeminent stepping away, not retirement. Um, you know, it's, it's, she brings up a good topic and it's a topic that is at the forefront of at least the Olympic sports world. You don't hear it talked about as much in sort of the major professional sports, but in Olympic sports, this is like the number one topic, mental health for athletes and the the pressures of media and social media. Um, and it, you know, it comes back to my, my ongoing opinion on this is, we do need to be concerned about athletes, um, mental health, their well-being. I I think I think people's knee-jerk reaction is take athletes off of social media, take athletes out of the media, et cetera, et cetera. And that's all well and good, but then you're essentially killing professional sports. And I don't think that's an outcome that anybody wants. It would be a very unintended consequence. Um, and so it, you know, to me, it it continues to go back to how do we give our top level athletes the tools to deal with these pressures, um, to ignore them, to respond to them, you know, whatever. I'm not a psychologist. I don't know what they should be doing, but how do we give them the tools to, to deal with these things without sort of, you know, being in the public eye is a big part of the job. Um, and, and this is what I always say about sports. And, and we have, we have commenters all the time that, Oh, you shouldn't, you shouldn't be, this person doesn't want to be in the media. They don't have to be in the media. And what I always say to them, um, is professional sports is not just about being the strongest, fastest, whatever anymore. It's being able to do that in the moment, in the right moment. You know, if you, if you're, if you're a basketball player and you can make 90% of threes in practice, and then you step out in front of 25,000 fans and you can't make any, then you are not the best professional basketball player. You are the best scrimmage basketball player. And so at some point we have to acknowledge that performance under pressure is part of being a professional athlete and part of being the air quotes best at a professional sport. Um, So you can't just kind of say, well, I'm, I'm not doing media anymore. I'm not doing social media. She makes a lot of money off of social media. Like that's, that's what's going to fund her, her new hobby of photography going forward is her 800,000 Instagram followers and her 100,000 Twitch followers. 
Um, so you can't just sort of poo-poo it, but I think there needs to be more and more focus on helping the athletes cope with it in a healthy way, because there are healthy way, healthy and less healthy ways to do it. Um, and so I, I hope, I hope she works on that and I hope it continues that conversation, especially in Latin America, where you haven't seen this is, she's sort of on the front edge of this in South America, whereas here in the U S this has been an ongoing topic for a while. I mean, from my perspective, and, and I'm a mom, so I I was on the fence about my son getting social media. I mean, obviously, if you put something out there, it's out there forever and ever. You can get good comments, bad comments. And I honestly think as a user, you kind of take that risk. Like if you're on social media and you have an account and you're putting you know, content out there, you can't just rainbow and unicorn only accept you know good feedback. You have to be willing to accept the bad feedback as well. And I understand what Braden is saying. Mental health is very, very important. I'm, I can attest to that. But it's definitely something that, you know, you have to take on some of, some of the responsibility as the social media poster and the social media content creator as well. So I think it's, you can't just wash your hands and say, oh, you know, I have, you know, negative feedback coming at me and now I, I have to step away from the spotlight. Like you have to be able to handle it. I mean, that's part of it is, is, accepting the responsibility for engaging with social media users. I wonder how much of the challenge is because so many athletes in Olympic sports and, and increasingly in sports like basketball and football step into the spotlight at 14, 15, 16, when everybody just kind of, they, their parents might are probably not sophisticated at that point in time. A lot of them to, Really, I mean, everybody I think now understands the pressures of social media to some extent, but the pressures of being a celebrity on social media is like a whole different animal. And I wonder if if so many of them, you think like a Missy Franklin or Reagan Smith, these kind of swimmers who have been in the spotlight since 14 or 15, they, they don't necessarily deal with it or get the 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 training, education, however you want to describe it on how to do social media more healthfully. Um, until they're 22, 23, and probably a lot of damage has been done by then. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, maybe it's a, maybe it's a, a, maybe there needs to be some more focus, not just on mental health for athletes, but especially mental health and, and coping with pressure for the obvious young athletes who are stepping into this. Don't wait for them to crack to get the, get mm-hmm. them the help, give them those tools up front so that it doesn't become a problem. So it's not a floodgate situation where it all just comes pouring out at some inopportune moment. And their parents. I think you hit on a good, I think their parents as well. I think it would be very valuable. Yeah. To, to bring them into the loop as well, because like you said, they're probably a little just uneducated, just inexperienced. And so that's, that's critical as well. They're the main support line in most well, cases. And, we, so. and we see it from parents of these swimmers all the time. Some of them are very good at dealing and accepting and handling the criticism of their kids, but it's hard to, you know, Loretta, it's hard to see your kid be criticized. And, and mm-hmm. if you take, 10 steps back, you say, okay, this is the game. It's, you know, yeah. it's, it is what it is, but people, people tend to not take 10 steps back and look <laughs> at their kids in that way. Um, right. so it's, it, you know, it could probably be a good family thing and that's good for everybody, right? Like a, a reluctant parent can then say, oh, you know, I didn't want to go to, to, to a psychiatrist or psychologist, but I did it for my kid. And kids can be reluctant about that kind of thing. And, but, you know, if they have the support of their parents with them, they might be more into it as well. So it can be a, Mm -hmm. I think it can almost be a positive um, to get more young people into it. 
Well, and you'd think that social media has been around as long as it has been, right? Well over a decade, coming in on two decades, um, that, that there would be some kind of educational tools um, for parents and for kids, as you said, to, to transition them into um, a more healthy usage of it rather than just, well, it's here. Go nuts. Yeah. <laughs> Shout out MySpace. Um, I think <laughs> I think there are tools, but my perception is that a lot of those tools are very judgy. They're very like, they're very, they follow whatever the latest parenting trend is mm. of, you know, now we're saying, no, keep your kids off of social media. It, mm. it, it, I, the ones I see don't do well at saying your kids are on social media. They're going to be on social media. Yeah. Let's. Exactly. Let's figure out how to deal with it. That's our news for the week. Now it's time to play our favorite game on the Swim Swim Breakdown, Sink or Swim. First up today on Sink or Swim, 19-3 and 42-7 sprint freestyler Jack Armstrong in his second NCAA transfer is headed to D2 Henderson State. I thought this was a really interesting move, most of all, because this is his second transfer within the NCAA freshman year. He was Auburn and then he switched to Grand Canyon and now he's headed outside of division one period um, because in in his words, it'll just be an easier process than to go to a third D one school. So sink or swim, we will see more of this uh, moving forward as we see more and more kids transferring. Jack, don't call me Hunter Armstrong. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I don't know. It's, it's hard to predict what the future of collegiate athletics is going to look like because I think it's going to be very different from what we're used to now in so many ways. Um, D2 still has more scholarship money. Everything you read um, about swimming and otherwise says that the transfer portal and the one-time transfer exception and, and basically making it easier to transfer has created like a wild west of transferring. It's, it's changed the paradigms of transfers. Um, and that's what we all said we wanted, right? We all said we wanted athletes to not be beholden to college teams that are similarly not beholden to them. Um, you know, the college programs have always had a lot of ways to sort of screw over the athletes. And now the athletes have their ways to do what's best for them without regard for the college program. So this is what kind of what we all said we wanted. Um, I, I think I'm going to swim more of this happening, but I think that's because I believe that division one athletics is going to fracture even further. There will be the power five and the non-power five um, will, will be even more divided than they are now. And so the gap between D2 and the mid-major programs were close and that will result in more swimmers going to D2. And we've seen some really fast D2 swimmers lately. That's, I think that's the other piece of it. There've just been some, especially in the sprints, but there've been some really fast D2 swimmers. That's why I was going to swim it. I mean, just for the fact that it's not like some black hole off, you know, in outer space somewhere, like it's a legit, you know, D2 conference or uh, league, whatever you call it. And so it's, I think it's tremendous opportunity for people to, to, capitalize on what others before them have done and just kind of carry that on in D2. So I'm swimming it. I'm swimming as well. I'll hop on the bandwagon. Yeah. I, I think that D2, especially over the last decade has proven to be a very legitimate, uh, 
<laughs> farm to grow on uh, <laughs> as opposed to D- D- division one. Um, we've seen a lot of really great swims happen at D2. You can get great educations there. So yeah. Well, the, the education, the educational, I'm not going to make a quality judgment, but the reputation of D2 schools academically is less consistent than D1 schools. So I think that actually works against it. It's not that you can't get a good education at D2. I think it's just less consistent is what I would describe it as. Gotcha. So guess we'll see. Speaking of transfers, Maggie McNeil, not going to Cal. She is reuniting with Rick Bishop at LSU for her fifth year. And here is my question under over she leaves LSU after her one year of eligibility, not, you know, after her one year of eligibility, 6.5 program records, including relays. Oh, it's going to be well over, Um, you know, like LSU, we can't, we can't sit here and say LSU never had good swimmers. You know, they had, they've had lots of NCAA qualifiers, they happen to have had a couple of very good butterflyers. That's sort of been a strength of the women's program there for a while. Um, but a lot of these times, you know, 50 free, 100 free, 100 fly are, are gimmies. Um, the 200 free she has is not faster than, you know, 100 back <clears throat> is more or less a gimme. Uh, Kaylee Oquist, a former Swim Swim contributor, still holds that record. Um, but Maggie is roughly three seconds faster. So, you know, the... I think what it comes down to is the fact that at the end of the day, Maggie can break some of these swims, in, some of these records in dual meets mm-hmm. um, on relay leadoffs. So I, you know, four seems like a minimum to me um, in four individuals and then the relay records, you know, Amanda Kendall was there. So they, they have some decent relay records, but when you throw like a 20 point split onto one of those, onto a 200 mm-hmm. free relay or a, 45 high split onto a 400 free relay. It's just such a difference maker. Um, and Rick Bishop is a good coach and the rest of the program will continue to improve. So I guess she gets about five individuals and probably four relays. So, I'm swimming it too. I, I, yeah, I think she's just a force to be reckoned with. She wasn't even at Michigan. So LSU is, she's going to want to cement her legend there. And so I think that's what she's going to do. I, I think it's kind of an easy swim Dang. Well, I'll take the under just to be (laughs) provocative. I think we'll expect a lot. I think she'll go fast there. I think it will be easier for her to get those individual records than the relay records. I don't actually know what LSU's relay records are. And I'm sure that there's a high chance that uh, they will get broken, especially with her tenure there, but just one year, it, it's not like the stars have to align, but it's not a lot of time. She does really good at swimming fast in season. And I know that the odds are against me on this one, but I could see her leaving there with just six, her name on the record board, just six times. I want to pull up who else LSU has in like some of these events. Somebody, somebody pull out a calculator. All right. Hit me. 22, seven. 227 227 22 7 and 21 oh 21 oh 88.8 which is 120 128 and the record is 128.9 and that's without relay starts 
so like to me that's like kind of close you know it's like it's not a given but it, it yeah. y- yes high chance <clears throat> yeah who, who does lsu have coming in next year not sure <clears throat> i'm looking i'm looking okay ella varga they have a 27 long course freestyler coming in um man they don't have a ton coming in but you know They've got three twenty twos and a twenty one oh. That's I mean, that's that's a record without even without relay starts. Yeah, I think Rick can develop talent. I think smart money is is over. But I'm just <laughs> I'm just playing devil's advocate here. So Thanks, let's move on. If you want to call me smart money from now on? I would be okay with that. <laughs> <laughs> Braden smart money, Keith. <laughs> All right. Uh, next up. We'll stick with the sprinting. Bruno Fratis hit number 97, 21 point of his career. Sink or swim, he gets number 100 at Worlds, meaning he would have to go prelims, semis, and finals. 21. These are super easy sink or swims. Um, I'm going to swim it because at the Olympics last year, it took a 21 to advance out of prelims. It took a 21 to advance out of the semifinals. Um, I'm still not sure I'd bet the house on him meddling, but he's certainly going to final, uh, especially after Mari Nostrum. We have to believe he's going to final. So I'm going to swim it because he's got three rounds and I think he's going to do it in all three because he's got to do it to get to the final. So that's a pretty easy swim. I am swimming it as well. Like there's no margin of error essentially with 53. You can't kind of coast and, and know like a 146 and the 200 free for, for instance, will make you to the next round. You know, you have to be pretty close. There's only hundreds separating these people. Right. So I don't even, think he's going to chance even it. Dressel doesn't really coast in the early rounds. Right. Right. So it's a swim from me too. It was a slow news week guys. All right. I know we're agreeing. So yeah, it definitely was. I'm, I can't play devil's advocate. It's swim. Absolutely. He'll do it. He is. That's because you don't want him to come 21. after me. That's because I don't want him to come after me on Instagram. <laughs> I, I like being Bruno's friend. Uh, three twenty-one points. We'll see number, but how cool is it going to be to see mm-hmm. number 100 in the 50 free final in Budapest. All right, moving on. Kelsey Dahlia joins the Louisville <clears throat> heavy Notre Dame coaching crew. The question is, will Notre Dame, men or women, be top six at their first ACCs with this new coaching staff? What were they last year? I know. I was wondering that. I do not know. (laughs) (laughs) I have no idea. I did not do my research. You didn't check that when you wrote this question? (laughs) I assumed they were not top six. Uh, Men were. Let's see. Men were eighth, and they were um, 202 points away from top six. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm looking at – let's see. Women were eighth as well. Women were sixth. uh, In 2022? I know what you're looking at. Read the headline of that scoring section. Because oh, <laughs> but it's a combined meet this year, but the database is set up as separate. The women were sixth. Women were um, sixth. <laughs> yeah. 15 points ahead of Virginia Tech, a rising Virginia Tech team, although a Virginia Tech team that hasn't recruited a whole lot. Um, you know, they get Jack Hoagland back for the men next year after a year of injury, the 2020 ACC Swimmer of the Year. 
Um, so that's definitely going to help. There's a lot of other new head coaches in the ACC. though. Um, Pitt has a new head coach. Boston College is going to have a new head coach. So I guess not a ton. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't think it'll be that quick um, because I think the gap, the gap on the men's side is big enough. Jack Hoagland will obviously help to close that gap, but the programs ahead of him, ahead of them are young programs that are improving. Um, It was a bad year for Notre Dame. So maybe if it just, the stability will help them. Um, I think maybe the Virginia tech women will nip them for sixth on the women's side. And I think the men could maybe, climb to seventh, but I think sixth would be a tall order. So I'm going to sink this one. I'm going to sink it as well. And only because, yeah. Okay. So, so we said the women were sixth, so maybe they'll maintain that position, but I don't think it's going to be any, you can't attribute anything solely to the coaches. I don't think, I mean, it takes a while to build a culture to like embed themselves in the, you know, the whole mentality of the team. So I think if you can attribute it to coaching, it's not going to be this up and coming year. It's going to take a little bit longer than that. And so Notre Dame graduated, uh, or sorry, I can't say graduate anymore. They had 192 <laughs> out of their 233 individual points from seniors. Mm-hmm. Um, and so far we have not heard from any of them about coming back for a fifth year. So that's more than Duke ahead of them. It's about the same number as UNC that are two spots ahead of them. It's 112 more than Virginia Tech, who was just behind them. Um, it's a hundred points more than Florida state. So they are losing a lot, which in some regards could be good for yeah. um, the yeah. new coaching staff and rebuilding the culture could be, could be an okay thing for the long term. Um, in the short term, that's a big loss of talent yeah. and talent yeah. does still matter. Coaching matters in college, in college swimming, but so does talent. Oh, man, I'm on the fence. Uh, I do think the coaching staff is, will have an immediate impact. Like you said, they had a tumultuous year. Um, the fact that they got the fact that they got sixth on the women's side is honestly really impressive to me, given the year that they had with their coaching staff, um, eighth in the men's ACCs right now is still like really solid considering where the ACC is at. It's just so deep. Um, I think with a solid coaching staff, one of those two teams can crack, can crack top six this year. In this game, our, our readers love this game. I think you have to tell us who you think they're going to beat because it's easy to be toxically positive, but it's hard. I'm I'm toxically positive. You have to be negative about. I am toxically positive. Yeah. You and Mel Stewart. (sighs) Oh, okay. This is okay. I think they will nor um I think Georgia Tech is losing a lot uh on the men's side. On the men's side, I think Georgia Tech's losing a lot. Um, they are 189 points individually. Uh well, 138 th- from fifth years. Yeah. Uh so like a lot of their like really good guys um will be out the door. Um I'm not, I'm not UNC. Um, the coaching staff has been there a while now and they've kind of been kind of stayed where they're at. Right. We haven't seen a ton of signs that they're going to make big moves. Um, and Florida state is kind of the same way for me. Uh, and so I counterpoint, both of those teams, their highest scoring class at ACC's last year were sophomores. Hmm. 
which is that's a, not good for you, Coleman. Not good for me. Sign. <laughs> not good for me. Um, I'm I'm getting on the wrong side of the ship. These ones. <laughs> I mean, is there a conference right now that has a better top to bottom roster of coaches than the ACC? I don't I think mean, so. Yeah, I don't. I think that is the conference right now. Yeah. Um, honestly. What about Pitt? What if the Pitt men catch Notre Dame? The Pitt men return more points than Notre Dame does, barring That's 50 really years. interesting. Yeah. That, I mean, that'll be just a great battle to observe anyway, right? Like two brand new head coaches, two young guys coming in, lots of vision, I'm sure. So ACC's is going to be the conference meet to watch. Uh, we got to move on. Last on Sink or Swim. We put out an article titled, Is David Popovich the fastest 50, 100, 200 freestyler ever? The answer is no. But we (laughs) did put together a fun diagram of uh, the top 10 all time. When you combine 50, 100, 200, it obviously heavily favors people who are really fast, the 200 freestyle example. Paul Bierman is number one on this list. Michael Phelps is number two. Yannick Agnell is number three. David Popovich is number five all time with with a total of 254.20, just 0.91 behind number one Paul Biederman all time. The question, sink or swim, David Popovich will end his career as number one on this list. I'm this this question is essentially do you think David Popovich is gonna pan <clears throat> out and live up to the hype? Because I think. To me, I think he'll end his career as the best 50, 100, 200 freestyler combo, you know, subjectively, if, if he pans out, right? Like he's got, he's got the talent to absolutely do this, um, but he's going to have to go 143, the 200 free. He's going to have to go 21.7 in the 50 free, which I absolutely think he can do. His 100 free 47.3 is a great swim. He probably doesn't need to do much more than that to be number one all time. Um, so I, I, I tend to think he will. But again, I think ultimately the question you're asking is, will his career pan out? Because that is he's correct. Got it. He, if it does, <laughs> he, obvi- he has an obvious second of drop across those three events. If he peaked at age 16, then he won't. But if he if he drops the way you'd expect somebody his age to drop, it seems like a no brainer, right? That's the question. I, I think is really well, like is, he is that a sink or swim, Braden? <laughs> I think that's a swim because I'm not going to come on this podcast and say that David Popovich has has uh, peaked at age 17. That would be a terrible take. <laughs> yes. All right, Loretta, sorry. I'm, I'm, no, 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 no. I'm thinking it only because I, I just kind of wonder if he's even going to continue swimming the 50. Like, I just, I don't know. I think in this day and age, like, I, he's 50. Is What's his best time in the 50? In the, is it in the article? What is 22, it? 22, 22. Okay. Two, I mean, two, so two, that's two. super solid, obviously, for his age. Super solid. Mm-hmm. But his 100 and 200, like, those are almost the most competitive events on the men's. I mean, and I'm kind of thinking, like, Jacob Whittle from Great Britain, I think, is still on the upward tra- uh, trajectory. And his, yeah, his times aren't in the same, like, he wasn't sub 48. He hasn't been, I don't think, sub 146 probably in his 200 free. But I'm just saying there's other bubbling talents that I think could potentially even surpass Popovich. So you're thinking maybe – he'll be faster than Biederman, but not necessarily the fastest that somebody yes. could, could 
catch to him first. I think that's possible. Yes. And I think that's a, that's a totally legitimate argument. Huang Sun Wu of South Korea is number seven on that list. Just two spots down. He's only 0.37 behind in aggregate uh, of Popovich 22, three, 47, five, one forty four six. Um, I could so, see Popovich though, just like going to some random meet tapering just to pop off a twenty one six and prove he can. That seems like in vibe. His with, arms are so long for a fifty; yeah. like they're like chunk. Yeah, I mean, they're I'm, so long. I'm yeah. swimming this because, as Braden said, I'm toxically op- optimistic, and uh, I, <laughs> I I think Popovich has a lot of upside. You know, it's like he's still he probably still growing. He certainly has muscle to put on. Uh, yes. And I, yeah, I think there's a second there um, between those three events that he can definitely take. And even though there's a lot of young guns, like Loretta said, coming up, I think he's going to be at the top. Be the one. <laughs> Plus you want to the write the um, David Popovich is better than Michael Phelps in this category. <laughs> <laughs> Is David Popovich the next Michael Phelps? No. The new Korean <laughs> daddy. <laughs> exactly. That's a swim swim breakdown. For anybody who doesn't know, I'm not being weird. That's <laughs> not weird. That's You're a swim swim breakdown. <laughs> Tune in every week for your week's news in swimming.